Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Haven't quite found my key, have I? Merry Christmas, listeners. Welcome to Homo Sapiens. I've been holding back so much Christmas cheer because I like to celebrate Christmas at Christmas, unlike most supermarkets, it seems. So this is me popping my Christmas cheer cherry for you all. Merry Christmas. It's December the 2nd. How are you all? All's well over here. I am looking at the most Christmassy scene in the world. It is beautiful, beautiful snow where I am. I'm actually snowed in, which is interesting. Don't know how I'm going to get a pint of milk later. But, uh turns out they're not sending salt trucks apparently so the roads just freeze and then what happens is if the roads are snowy and then people drive over it it gets slipperier and slipperier i am not a good driver at the best of times i'm going to say that i should probably not go out and drive so it's strict milk rationings in this house because i love my husband dearly i love him to death but boy does he blitz the milk on his cereal it's like hello there's other people who want the milk Now then, it was World AIDS Day yesterday, so we have got such a special episode for you. I am going to be chatting to Real Life Angel, is what I'm going to call her, Ruth Coker Burks. She wrote a book called All the Young Men about her time caring for men dying of AIDS in Arkansas in America at the beginning of the crisis. It is the most incredible story of compassion and love, which is so relevant today Because I do feel like if we look at the news, how low on compassion we are running for members of the trans community, gender non-conforming community, the vitriol that they are getting right now that used to be directed at gay men, lesbians, and particularly people with AIDS, and still people with AIDS, by the way. Basically, to cut a long story short with Ruth, she was living in Arkansas in America, not known for its liberalness. And she noticed a boy who was dying of AIDS in a hospital room when no one would even go into the room to go near him because they thought they could catch it. She defied them all. She went in there. She looked after that boy. She then buried him on her family's land and went on to care for thousands of other men who were dying of AIDS, burying them on her family's land so that they could have the dignity of a burial when no one else in the world would give it to them. 
they were ostracized they were treated like pariahs they were abandoned by their families and all they had was ruth ruth is the most amazing person she's incredibly funny as well so it's a it's a really fun chat about an amazing person who did an incredible thing she is an angel and i'm not religious by the way um quite interesting because she is religious although she sort of then talks about how she's not so uh interesting how faith uh, but she certainly came up against the church a lot in what she was doing. It's very, very interesting. And we're going to have that chat in a moment. But first of all, are you caught up on your recent Homo sapiens episodes? Last week, we had a absolute superstar on the podcast, Roshi Murphy. I just loved her. And so many of you wrote in lovely messages. Uh, Jen, practice with Jen on Instagram. She wrote in saying how much she loves Roisin. So many of you just wrote, oh my God, I can't believe you've got her. She speaks to the lgbtq plus community she's very queer in her way isn't she she's defiant and she's there's such a deep emotional side to her music that connects with lgbtq plus people i find all the time very very interesting if you haven't catch up on apple podcasts also tell us what you thought of it hello at homo sapiens podcast.com or at homo sapiens on instagram also this is your weekly reminder to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. And then if you review, you could win a t-shirt, the much coveted Homo sapiens t-shirt. New design coming soon. Keep trailing that. Probably should do something about it in real life. Um, but, but me and Katie, Katie is one of the producers of Homo sapiens. She has ordered a sample. So we're getting there. But you know, like all great creatives, it takes a while. God, I've got a lot of coffee mugs on my table. Look at that. Three of them three all with mm, slightly cold coffee and well two of them very cold because they're days old i actually had a bit of a clear out of my office here and i found a bottle of water that had gone moldy how does that even happen what was in there mm. uh now then city desk that's what my dad always used to say when he answered the phone city desk i don't know what it means um that was my tapping because it's time to look at some emails We've had some lovely messages, as always. Jasmine has been in touch. Jasmine is not Jasmine's real name, she says at the bottom. Hi, you lovely people. Thank you for helping me feel part of an amazing LGBT family. I am a bi female and I feel so alone. When I listen to podcasts, I'm part of a wonderful community. Thank you, darlings. Oh, Jasmine, that's really cute. And i got to say, you are part of a family. And I'm thrilled that this feels like home for you. Oh my God, by the way, such an exciting piece of news, re-Christmas special. I can't say any more, but boy, have we got a good guest. Another email from someone called Chris. What a great name. Hello, it's been a while since I've written in, but two things really struck a chord recently. Good. Tick, tick, Chris. Do you think this is me writing to myself? Firstly, the interview with Dino Fetcher was great. Although I now live abroad, I grew up in South Wales and I'm roughly the same age as Dino. Quite a few of the thing, few of the things he said resonated. And when he said that he remembers not knowing what being gay meant, but knowing he was ashamed of it, felt like he was reading my mind from when I was a kid. It's a shame I can't go to London to see the play, but I'll have to make do with streaming the film. Great, great second option there, Chris. Secondly, the interview with Yotam Otolenghi, still available on the feed, was also really interesting. When he talked about PE lessons, I distinctly recalled exactly the same experience of being sent out to play football. Actually, the experience wasn't exactly the same because as this was South Wales, the weather was usually wet, cold, windy or all of the above. Uh-huh. 
The same in Southfields in London, I tell you, Chris. Sometimes the teacher would give the whistle to a boy who couldn't participate for some reason and they would referee and we would only see the teacher when it was time to go back in to change. <laughs> That's so funny. I used to, um, yeah, they used to let me do things like refereeing. They actually used to, used to let me bring a book to cricket. What does that tell you about their hopes for my sporting prowess? Um, but yeah, I remember once we had this huge organised football match for the school year. I don't know why this happened, but it did. I went to an all-boys school, so everyone in our year decided they were going to play some big match against each other. And I was always trying to stick myself in the centre of things. So I said I would referee it, because obviously I couldn't play. Okay, I had not ever... I don't think I'd ever even watched more than two seconds of football. So one, I didn't know the rules. Slight challenge. Two, have you ever tried telling a boy that they're offside when perhaps they're not? Or have you ever tried telling a man that they are in the wrong when they don't agree. Uh, Everyone just kept shouting me down and going nuts at me every time I made a decision, a pretty ill-informed decision. And then I did a terrible thing, which is I changed my mind on the pitch in front of them all. So then I backed down. It was an absolute cataclysm. I don't know how I got through the 90 minutes. Do you play for 90 minutes as a child or is that a professional thing? Anyway, hell on earth. So funny, Chris, I remember those sorts of things as well. Thank, back to his email. Thank you for continuing to make the podcast. I look forward to listening to the new episodes each week on my commute. Chris, we aim to please. Now then, Christmas season. Lots of people love going to a panto. Let's have a bit of culture club. Listener David has a recommendation for you all, you l- those in London. Dick Whittington, a new dick in town. An above the stag panto written by John Bradfield, his 12th gay panto, but my first, says David absolutely awesome bawdy sexy intelligent and moving oh sounds like my old grinder profile please promote it on homo sapiens chris it's a total joy and such a celebration of queerness david you know absolutely consider it promoted we've had an email from derek greetings i wonder if you might consider making mention of my recently published memoir on world aids day the first of december What seems particularly significant with regarding to this upcoming World AIDS Day, and as flagged in my memoir, is the stark contrast between those who are now able to access PrEP and for whom AIDS is no longer any sort of threat to their lives, and the tragically large number of people elsewhere in the world who continue to die from AIDS. This contrast chimes, you'll agree, with the current debate surrounding the equitable distribution of COVID vaccines. That's the heavy stuff. Mostly my memoir is about joy, inspiration, fun, and most particularly love – Derek's memoir is called Living and Loving in the Age of AIDS. Well, consider it promoted as well. Are the Culture Club recommendations from you all? What are you all watching? Let's dig in. So this is where you reply on Instagram and I read it out. Bird's been watching Keeping Up Appearances as it's just come on iPlayer. Oh my God, I love Keeping Up Appearances. Uh, Captain Nina has been watching Dixon Dickinson season three. Is that David Dickinson? Don't know what that is. C.S. Arcus has been watching Spencer. Still haven't watched it. Rich has been watching Impeachment, American Crime Story, about the Clinton affair. Matthew's been watching Made on Netflix. Prince has been watching Unconditional Love, which is a very sweet film with Kathy Bates and Rupert Everett. Hello. Unofficial McDonald's has been reading Loveless by Alice Oseman. Now, Alice Oseman wrote a lovely comic, so I'd love to read that. Craft Pat's been reading Alan's book Baggage. Yes! Jay Hibbs has been reading Lucifer. Riding is my life has been listening to Susie Ruffle's podcast. Now, I love Susie Ruffle. I met her the other week, actually. Let's have her on the podcast. 
Now, Lena has a podcast. I should give a shout out. Lena's one of our wonderful listeners. She's done a podcast called Queer Lit Podcast. So look it up. Have a listen, everybody. I don't know if anybody saw, but there was a show uh, about Freddie Mercury on the other day on BBC iPlayer, I think. And it was talking about how Freddie obviously very sadly died of AIDS. And how Elton, John, was such a great friend to Freddie and was very central to the benefit that they did, the big massive gig they organised after Freddie died. And listening to people like Brian May talk about how, you know, Freddie wouldn't ever really say what was wrong with him and he only came out about having AIDS just before he died because of the stigma surrounding it was really, really sad. And you just watched that and you listened to how beautifully Elton stuck up for Freddie and supported him just loved it. So worth a watch there as well. Now then, since it was World AIDS Day yesterday, I thought we'd just kick off with a little bit of a highlight of the amazing work the Elton John AIDS Foundation has been doing. Their mission is to create a world free from AIDS. And that is no small feat. They do a sort of a few different things. One of them is to fight stigma. One of them is to provide treatment with love. And another one is to prevent infections. And people who are suffering from from AIDS is to give them dignity, which can be very, very short in short supply, as Ruth talks about. Um, one of the things about AIDS that Ruth touches on in her interview is that it can feel incorrectly like the fight is over. But it's important to know that we've lost 36.3 million people to AIDS all over the world. In 2020, 680,000 people died from AIDS. And what the Elton John AIDS Foundation does is it works hard with brilliant campaigns to try and eliminate AIDS by 2030, which is when the world pledged, you know how we've pledged, for example, with COP26 to bring back emissions, you know, the world did that with AIDS to try and end it by 2030. But one of the things that Elton John AIDS Foundation has done is they have highlighted, they wrote a letter to the Prime Minister on 27th of May 2021 to highlight that COVID, because it's been such a huge thing and it has sidelined the brilliant work that was being done on HIV And it shut down HIV prevention and treatment services in many countries literally overnight, which has cut off millions of girls from school. It's driven up poverty, gender-based violence and human rights violations. And all of these factors increase people's risks of acquiring HIV or developing AIDS. It's such a brilliant organisation who are doing incredible things in all different ways in, in developing countries and in countries where traditionally people might think that HIV is disappearing when it's not. You know, they've just done a thing last year. They collaborated with Walmart to do a HIV testing thing in Atlanta. Such brilliant work and so useful to just head onto their website and just remind ourselves about where we're at with it and how we can continue to help. And if you can donate in any way, please do. Um, And if you can't, please, you know, go on there, share, share things. That's also really useful. And all we can say is a huge thank you to Elton John and the AIDS Foundation for doing such incredible work. Without them, we would be way further behind on the progress that we need in order to get rid of AIDS by 2030. Now then, let's go and have a listen to our interview with the lovely Ruth Coker-Burks. She just shows that love is the answer. 
I wanted to talk to you about your book. There are so many things that I loved about it and that struck me, which I think must be to do with the person that you are, because you're very, very funny. Um, (laughs) You have to be funny if you're dealing with death. Yes. You actually said a wonderful thing about in your book where um, you were talking about Billy, a really close friend of yours, and we would talk more about him, I hope. But he came to do a talk at a school to talk to young kids about his illness. And you said, the dying are fine about talking about dying. It's just the ones who aren't dying who won't. Is that right? Yes. it's. I've learned more from the dying than I ever learned from the living. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because they live every day until they die. At least my AIDS patients did. And I've been mm. around other people who live until they die. Sometimes it's so bad and it's so dreadful that you are praying for them to die as they are praying for themselves to die because it's just too mm. much. But you've got to have a sense of humor with everything. And with dying, People don't have a sense of humor anymore, but the person who's dying still does have a sense of humor. That's the one part that's really taken away from them. You're very open and honest about having been through a ton of things in your life. And, you know, is that why you've chosen to deal with it with humor? Because you've just got to keep going? I I suppose that's it. I mean, seriously, you've got to have a gallows humor. And you've got to be, you've got to be sick and demented, but you really you know if you don't have a sense of humor, you're not going to be able to do anything in life, and you've got to just be able to get up and dust off and go you know that was mm. whatever and just keep keep going. One thing that struck me when you were doing the incredible work that you were helping um AIDS victims and being the only person they could go to to help them in their final moments of their life the local community were not that happy about what you were doing so they would burn crosses on your in your front yard yes but the detail that you describe it in the book is that <laughs> there's a whole conversation about well they're burning really good wood why are they <laughs> using good wood yeah <laughs> And it just, it made me chuckle, not because I think anything about what has happened is funny. Right. It made me chuckle that, that cause I, cause I feel sympathy and empathy for that. But I, like, just to see how, how you deal with it like that shows so much about what a wonderful person you are. And oh, I, well, thank you. Oh, no, honestly. And, and I wondered if you would mind just, you know, so many people have read your book as we know, cause it, it was as we now know. Sunday Times top 10 bestseller but if you wouldn't mind just telling me about the first moment that you went on this journey of helping all these young men because it's such an incredible story well you know and if I had had an iPhone back then I would Mm. have stayed in Bonnie's room and I would have been scrolling on the iPhone or looking at Facebook or something you know or looking at pictures I had taken, and I wouldn't have noticed that they had put that big red bag on the door. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't have seen the nurses drawing straws to see who would go in and check on him. And, you know, I'm not a good sit-in-the-room type person. I'm a hall pacer. 
And I just couldn't stand. See, I knew about AIDS because I have a cousin in Honolulu who's gay. And back then I I was over there one Christmas and I asked him, you know, was he in danger of getting this disease? And he goes, oh, no, honey, that's just the leather guys in San Francisco. And, you know, I'm like 25 years old and I'm trying to be cool. Like, oh, yeah, I know what a leather guy is, of course. (laughs) I didn't know what a leather guy was for years. And then I go, oh, now I get it. But, you know, I loved him so much that, and I still do to this day. He's still living Mm and, you know, he's retired now. But I wanted to know as much about it as I could in case he got it. I was so worried about him. And he never got it. But it was something that just stayed with me. And Mm -hmm. it was years. I mean, this was back during the Reagan administration. And, you know, he's the one that they didn't mention AIDS until, you know, a bunch of people had already died. And then they're like, his press secretary, Vance, I think was his name. He's like, well, we're going to talk about AIDS. Do you have AIDS? I don't have AIDS. And it was a joke in in the White House briefing room. And that was just the way they handled it. And they didn't do anything to help at all. Nothing. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So you were visiting, you're in hospital and you're visiting your friend Bonnie. Yes. You went for a walk along the hall or something, didn't you? I did. There were three nurses who we had grown to love because Bonnie was having her fifth reconstructive surgery since her cancer diagnosis. So that's five years that we waited for those surgeries. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I would bake cookies and take them up there in like a little cookie tin and we'd all grab a cookie out and eat it. And, um, I didn't know those nurses who were out there drawing straws, even though they were the same ones that we had grown to love so much. And um, I just couldn't imagine what it was. Well, I did know what it was. And so when they all drew their last straw, they all just took off in separate halls down to the end to start working their way back and waiting on other patients. And they completely ignored that room. And it had his trays and I had never seen a disposable styrofoam tray before and they were Mm. lined up in the hall probably about maybe I don't know six five of them and there was apple juice all over it and it was a bologna sandwich that you know they had just kicked everything 
Oh, you know, it's just, and who would want to eat food that was laying on the floor of a hospital? Mm. And so I snuck into his room. Wow. I couldn't tell him from the bed sheets. And I thought, well, maybe he's in the restroom. And he wasn't. He was so frail and so thin and so pale that he was all wrapped up in the bed sheets. And I couldn't tell him from a clump of bed sheets. And so I went over to him and I asked if there was anything I could do. And I kind of straightened out his sheets and, you know, got him a little bit comfortable. And he said he wanted his mother. And I thought, well, yay, I can do that. And then I can get out of here and go back to my life. So I told him, I promised him I'd be right back. And I went out and I announced to the nurses that, you know, he wanted to see his mama. And they all backed up like I had them at gunpoint. And they were standing against that back wall. And uh, they said, you didn't go in that room, did you? And I go, well, yeah, I did. And they go, oh, well, he's got that gay disease. Don't you go back in there again? And you went in there without, you know, garb on and all of that. Mm. And I said, well, can't we call his mother? And they go, honey, his mama's not coming. He's been here six weeks. Nobody's coming. Mm. You know, they finally reluctantly gave me a phone number and I reached for the desk phone, which we had used all those years. And they they scraped it back across the desk and said the payphone's down the hall. Mm. So with as much dignity as I could muster up, I went down to the end of the hall and I called his mother and she hung up on me. She said, I don't have a son. He died when he went gay. Don't call me back. And I called her right back. And I said, if you hang up on me one more time, I'll put your son's cause of death in the local newspaper and I'll list his cause of death. And I had her complete attention and she still didn't even want me to call when he died. Wow. It was brutal. You know, this was... You know, I th- I always feel like it's kind of important to contextualize because people didn't know what AIDS was, did they? They didn't know how it was transmitted at no, this point. No, And it was just really easy to pin it on, you know, like you say, those people in leather bars or people other than us. And, and people thought it was airborne as well because you were very, one of the things that you did that was so transgressive was that you wouldn't wear protection when you went to see people no and that that man's name was jimmy right right? and what are the paper gowns going to do anyway they're paper (laughs) and you (laughs) know won't the little aids virus just crawl up my legs i had on a dress so wouldn't it just crawl up my legs or up my sleeves and get me i mean seriously but did you, because at that point no one knew whether it was airborne, whether it was this, whether it was that, like, did you think that it was because there was a higher purpose or because you just didn't care, not care, as you weren't afraid? Sorry. I uh, I knew it was a higher purpose. I had absolutely no doubt because as I, my heels are dug in, I felt something just pushing me through that door. Mm. And I crossed my fingers. I'm like, okay, God, please don't let me get this. If this is what you want me to do, please don't let me and my daughter get AIDS. And that was all I knew to do. So then you ended up in this strange situation where when Jimmy died, you ended up with his ashes because his family didn't want them. I know. Tell me a bit about that because there's a wonderful 
full-on brawl at a family funeral that's involved in this, which I just think is, is unbelievable and yeah. hysterical. My mother had gotten mad at her oldest brother when I was 10 years old. My grandmother had died. This fight had been going on for decades before I was even born. And uh, I don't know what it was about. I have no idea, but it had to be pretty brutal for her to buy over 200 grave spaces to keep he and his family from being buried with the rest of our family. And he had to be buried in the public cemetery. And when the hearse drove through the pillars at the the, uh, public cemetery, my mother was shooting off Roman candles over the hearse. Gosh. He must have done something horrible to her for her to do that. But there I was, 10 years old, and we'd go out to the cemetery every Sunday. And she goes, someday all of this is going to be yours. Mm-hmm. And I'm an only child. And I thought, well, you know, why can't I have a ring or a watch or something like that instead yes. of grave spaces? But who would ever know that, you know, a few years later, 15 years later, I would need a cemetery. You buried Jimmy's ashes in that cemetery, right? I did. On your on top of your dad's grave, right? I did. I did. And uh, you know, it was just a do it yourself funeral and I had like a um pick and a post hole digger and you know, a shovel and that's all I used out there to dig the graves. And um, you know, it was just what I had to do and you know I couldn't get anybody to dig it for me because um, I couldn't tell anybody what I was doing I was Mm -hmm. afraid that you know they would vandalize the cemetery or go and dig him up or any number of things they were doing Mm -hmm. you know to people with AIDS and um, so I buried them in places where I knew I could find them if I ever needed to And their families all knew where they were buried. I made sure that I spoke to every family, whether they wanted me to or not, and told them where their son was buried. So if they wanted to go and get him, they could. And did anybody ever come? Not that I know of. So they are all still there at your family plot? Yeah. Because there was you with, after this sort of family argument where then suddenly you basically owned a cemetery um, and you ended up putting everybody, all these men and boys who died of AIDS to rest, put their ashes to rest in your family cemetery, which is just what a beautiful bit of dignity to be given when nobody would afford those people those things. But you buried that first person, Jimmy, on your dad's grave. Right. What kind of man was he? Because he died when you were very young. Yes. It says so much to me that what a kind and wonderful man he must have been that you knew that that he would look after Jimmy. Yeah. And, you know, he's buried right close to the roads. They can talk about the cars that pass and who's (laughs) in them. And, you know, they hear a car coming up the road. They know it's Aunt Thelma coming by. But, you know, and I told them this when they were dying that, you know, Mm. daddy would tell, you know, and I made a joke out of it just like that. And it it made them feel comforted to know that they were going to be with somebody who would love them. Mm. And my grandparents are buried in that cemetery. And my family's been buried there since the 1800s. And uh, 
just that, uh, you know, daddy, he, um, he died when I was five and my mother was sent away to a tuberculosis sanitarium when I was six months old. So I didn't know my mother until she got out just in time for daddy to die. And, mm. but he raised me and he would take me home. He was from Florida and down in the Keys and we would go. I remember being a little girl and like putting my mouth on the side of the boat to kind of, you know, like little kids will chew on stuff, just bored. And I remember looking at the gators and the snakes and everything going down a river in Florida. You know, that's all that's there are gators and snakes. Yeah. But, you know, he just took me everywhere and he was 60 when I was born and he wanted he told my mother the only thing he wanted was a baby girl, and here I am. Wow. So he loved me. He loved me with all of his heart. That's so lovely. And to lose your dad so young and for your mum to be so unwell, yeah. do you feel that maybe you're learning lessons about loss at, a, at an incredibly young age that yes. people don't traditionally get to by the time they're See, my mother was 40 when I was born in 1959, and that was ancient. Yes, that was, and I'm her only child and his only child. And Mm. so that was just ancient back then. Then my grandfather died two years after my daddy died, and then my grandmother died three years after he died. So it was, I was the youngest of all the grandchildren. They're all like 20 years older than I am. Mm. And so, yeah, and my grandmother kind of raised me after daddy died to protect me mm-hmm. from my mother, and then my protection was gone. And, um, yeah, it, you know, and we kept people at home while they died. And what does that do to your feelings on mortality, I suppose? Do you think it gives you a different perspective? I think it does. This March, I'll be 63, and daddy was 64 when he died. So that'll be an interesting wow. year to, uh, yeah, to, to become. And I had a, a near fatal stroke in 2010 and I didn't think I would be here today. Well, thank you, but I'm doing really well, but, um, you know, I didn't think I would be here today and Mm. I am. And, uh, and you look bloody amazing. Well, thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I needed that. um, Oh, there's plenty more where that came from. Oh, good. And so, um, you know, death can just come so quickly. My grandmother mm. was going to play bridge with her best friend who was driving the car that my grandmother was in when, you know, the wreck happened. And it threw mm. my grandmother out of the car and on top of her. And my school bus pulled up on the scene. It had the wheels were still turning on the car. And wow. and I knew it was my grandmother. I, I recognized the car, at, you know, Miss Massey's car, and I knew it was my grandmother because I was standing at the front of the school bus, waiting to get off. And uh, Lord, and the driver let us off. I mean, it was crazy. But anyway, um, and two Mormons came by and lifted the car off my grandmother. So you know, she was just taken in an instant. And then the others really, you know, daddy weighed less than a hundred pounds. I think he weighed about 75 pounds when he died. And so, you know, death just comes in so many different ways that you don't think about as a child. Mm. One thing I really wanted to know 
is you had that incredible experience with Jimmy who was in the hospital and he had no one. No right. one would look after him. And you took it upon yourself to bury him and to give him the send-off he deserved. So that's the first person. But then you went on to help hundreds, thousands? Well, over 10 years, that's only 100 people a year. So, yeah. How did it move from being one to so many? Well, I was the only one in Arkansas who was doing anything. Mm -hmm. And... um, That was back in the early days when no one knew what to do. The doctors wouldn't take you. The nurses wouldn't take you. You know, Mm. we took Billy to the hospital one night, and they wouldn't let him in the emergency room because they knew if I was there, they knew he had AIDS. And Mm. it wasn't even an AIDS-related issue that he had gone to the ER. I think it was a sinus infection or something. And uh, they called the sheriff. And there was a sheriff's car waiting to take him to jail because the hospital was not uh, equipped to take an AIDS patient. Really? But the funny thing was, after I called the administrator at 2 o'clock in the morning and told him since I was awake, maybe he would like to be awake, um, and I was going to have the best publicity that he could never afford to pay for there at 5 o'clock in the morning if he didn't admit Billy to the hospital. And I am telling you, I would have called Little Rock and had every TV truck over there that next morning. And he reluctantly let him in because he didn't want that. He knew I would do it. And just for people who don't know, you know, tell me a bit more about the disdain with which AIDS, people with AIDS were treated with. I remember you saying about Jimmy, the first first boy, how he was shoved in a bag his body was yeah. shoved in a bag yeah. you know, what what was the atmosphere like well, in the attitude it was a funeral home down in the delta and i knew they were going out of business because i had passed it many times and their grass in the front yard was like knee high but i you know they were still open but i knew that they were really struggling if they couldn't even afford to mow their lawn and i had called all the funeral homes in little rock and so I, these guys said that they would come in. It was an African-American funeral home. And here in the South, I mean, you don't go to a black funeral and they don't go to a white funeral. I mean, it is all segregated. It probably still is today for a big extent of that. But um, they came and got him and they said, okay, well, we're not going to embalm him, and we will only cremate him, and we'll come after hours, and you can't ever tell anybody. And I'm like, okay, I'm good with all of that, seriously. And so mm-hmm. they came, and they had on those ridiculous hazmat-type suits. They didn't have hazmat suits back then, but they had on some kind of protective stuff, probably involving mm-hmm. duct tape. And... um they just shoved him in a bag and, you know, just like they were like he was a hot potato, just get him and shove him wow. in the bag. And he probably didn't weigh 60 pounds. You know, he was just skeletal with just his bones. You know, you could see every bone in his body and his organs. And it was just so sad that they would treat a human being with such lack of dignity. I had never seen that before. It's that thing when we don't understand, we treat it with more yeah. disdain. And it just it's uh, 
such a crushing shame. I took a pail of water with soap in it and a washcloth, and I went and I washed his face while he was still alive, and I washed, you know, his tears. It had been so long since he had cried because he was so dehydrated. He couldn't produce Mm -hmm. tears anymore, but the stains were still all over his dirty face. And, you know, I fixed his hair, and I washed him up, and straightened his bed for him and you know I got him ready to go where he was going with you know with dignity and then they come and you know took it all well they didn't take it away I wouldn't let him he still died with his dignity Mm. and when you were burying people you had to take flowers with you didn't you to pretend I was so afraid I was going to get caught doing what I was doing, even though it was a cemetery that my family had been buried in for, you know, decades. Those spaces were mine, but I would still take flowers and pretend like I was planting a rose bush or pretend like I was planting some bulbs so people Mm. wouldn't come and ask me what I was doing. Wow. Mm -hmm. And it became a situation where you'd done a few acts of kindness of of helping these people get the end of life care they weren't getting anywhere else but then suddenly you became this this go-to person right I did because your phone just started ringing right? it did and you know it would ring before daylight with somebody who just couldn't hang on until daylight to call me it'd be five o'clock in the morning or 4.30 because they just couldn't wait until, you know, eight o'clock around here is the proper time that you can call someone in the morning. And they Mm -hmm. couldn't wait that long. They had waited all night or maybe all week to call me. And, you know, I don't know. It just word got out on the streets. I don't know how it happened. Or the nurses said, we don't want you, but here's this woman's phone number. She's crazy. She'll take you. And I just started getting phone call after phone call after phone call of desperate men who didn't have a clue what was wrong with them. They didn't Mm. know. No one knew. And no one here knew about the tsunami of death that was about to hit my little town and my state. I had no idea. I mean, I knew it was coming, but I had no idea it was that big. I had no idea that it would be a pandemic. They were all so beautiful and kind and sweet and loving. And they had no one because Mm. the reason I really told this story is, number one, I thought I was going to die after my stroke. They said, you have a 75% chance of dying the first year, so go home and get everything in order. And I just looked at that doctor and I said, who are you talking to? And (laughs) uh, so I, um, I wanted that story to be told because people think it just happened in San Francisco on the West Coast or in New York City on the East Coast. But it happened right smack in middle America where all those men went, you know, they left their homes. They were thrown out of their churches. This is how it happened. The churches got up and said, you know, AIDS is God's punishment for all those nasty gay people. And, you know, Mm. if you've got someone in your family, throw them out. God's, it's their punishment. It's uh, the sins of the father will be, you know, the son. And, 
everybody was scared to death that their churches would find out and would throw the whole family and out of the church and shun them. Mm. So the families just got rid of their problem. They got rid of their sons. They shunned their sons. And that's what they were afraid the church was going to do to them. And so these sons land on your doorstep or their problem lands on your doorstep. And at first there wasn't medication and things, but what did they think you could do that you could? They thought that if they just had a soft place to land, If they just had someone's arms to fall into, that everything would be okay. And it was until they died, but they didn't die alone. And uh, I don't see, you know, death and I are old friends, and I've always Hmm. pictured death as a drag queen with red hair and an old west like a barmaid up on top of an upright piano in the old west movies and um in a bar and you know death and i were old friends and she would come and you know it just i don't know it's my imagination or if she was really there i don't know but you know it helped me and i would tell my guys you know about death and made it not as scary. Mm. And they did a study, didn't they, of um, how long people lived after HIV developed into AIDS. And they did. The, they found that the boys who were with you or the men who were with you lived how much longer? Two years longer than the national average. And that's because of? I loved them. That was the only thing they could think of is I loved them. They were loved and they were cared for. And there was no paper gowns or gloves. We just loved each other. Isn't Ruth just wonderful? Uh, That's the end of part one. Go back to the feed for part two. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Powered by Spirit Studios.